How many American cities can claim they had a mayor that took a bullet intended for a president-elect? That is what one Chicago mayor did when he was shot while talking with President-elect Franklin Delano Roosevelt at an event in Miami in 1933. This is the story of Mayor Anton Cermak. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. The 1930s, the U.S. was in the midst of the Great Depression. One in four Americans was out of work. In Chicago, things were especially severe because of the city's reliance on manufacturing, which was the hardest-hit sector nationally. Of the many Chicagoans who had worked in manufacturing in 1927, only 50% were still doing so in 1933. By 1932, between 40 and 50% of African-American workers in Chicago were unemployed. White-collar jobs weren't safe either. As of February of 1933, public school teachers were owed eight and a half months back pay. Chicagoans were fed up with the policies of Republican Mayor William Big Bill Thompson, now known as one of the most corrupt mayors this city has ever seen. If you want to hear more about Big Bill, check out episode 117 of this podcast. In the election of 1931, Democratic candidate Anton Cermak went up against Thompson with a campaign promise, Restoration of Chicago's Lost Reputation. The winner of this election would also be mayor for the upcoming World's Fair of 1933. All right, let's step back a moment to give you a little background on Anton Cermak. Cermak was born in 1873 to a mining family in Kladno, Austria, Hungary, now in the Czech Republic. Uh, it's about 50 miles from Prague. One year after his birth, he, his parents, and his siblings emigrated to the U.S., specifically the Chicago area, settling in Braidwood, Illinois. That's about 62 miles southwest of downtown Chicago. At that time, Braidwood was a huge supplier of coal to the area. By the time he was 11, young Anton was working in those coal mines with his father and brother as a mule driver, opening and closing the trapdoors for the mules for 85 cents a day. When he was 16, he was fired from that job for asking for a raise. He allegedly packed up his belongings in a bandana, Norman Rockwell style, and walked to Chicago. At 17, Cermak was working for a streetcar company and taking business classes at night. He had also started his own business hauling waste wood away in a pushcart from the International Harvester Company that he would later resell. Within five years, Cermak had turned that wood hauling business into a coal business which employed 40 men and gave him the funds to begin investing in real estate around Chicago. He also established two home loan banks. Cermak's interest in politics led him to his first public office in 1902, state legislator, and became floor leader. From there, he worked his way up the political ladder, serving as president of the Cook County Commission for multiple terms, where he wiped out a sizable deficit and was part of the development of Cook County's huge forest preserve system. 
Along the way, Anton Cermak married a woman he met in Chicago, and they had three daughters together. Cermak's wife died in 1928 after a lingering illness. Now, in the election of 1931, Anton Tony Cermak accused Big Bill Thompson of being in league with Al Capone, Chicago's mob boss, and other gangsters. Thompson responded to allegations by calling Cermak a low-class foreigner, a pretty bold tactic at that time, as uh, two out of every three Chicagoans was either foreign-born or the child of foreign-born immigrants. As I wrote about in the episode on Big Bill Thompson, Thompson chided Cermak on his immigrant background, being from what was then known as Bohemia, with the, the following ethnic attacks. I won't take a back seat to that bohunk, chermak, chermak, or whatever his name is. Tony, Tony, where's your pushcart at? Can you picture a World's Fair mayor with a name like that? Cermak was able to effectively respond to these attacks. Quote, he doesn't like my name. It's true. I didn't come over on the Mayflower, but I came over as soon as I could. End quote. This response resonated with the large ethnic Chicago population, and Thompson's slurs were largely ignored. Anton Cermak went on to win by 200,000 votes and claimed 45 of the city's 50 wards, including Thompson's home ward, by a substantial margin to become the city's 44th mayor. In his first inaugural address, Mayor Cermak proclaimed, quote, I'm going to give the people of Chicago the best administration they ever had, end quote. He started by immediately clearing out Thompson's cronies from the city's payrolls. An active supporter of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Cermak campaigned on behalf of FDR in FDR's quest to become president. Honestly, from what I've read, dislike for then-President Herbert Hoover was pretty strong, but still, it's always good to have a strong mayor in your corner. Cermak is credited with delivering a 330,000-vote majority for FDR in Cook County. That election turnout, almost 40 million, was the largest in American history up until that time. Roosevelt was elected on November 8, 1932, with the inauguration planned for the following March 4, 1933. The economic situation in the country continued to get worse. Nine million savings accounts were wiped out by the failures of 5,000 banks. FDR chose Miami for a pre-inauguration vacation spot for some much-needed relaxation in February of 1933. Although he planned to just do some fishing for a few days aboard a friend's yacht away from the public before returning to New York, at the suggestion of Robert H. Gore, the publisher of the Fort Lauderdale Daily News, Roosevelt agreed to attend a rally in Miami where the president-elect would meet up with influential party leaders, on February 15, 1933. As word spread about the president-elect's impending appearance, locals began to crowd Bayfront Park, facing Biscayne Bay in Miami, at 6 p.m. By 7 p.m., it was standing room only. By 9 p.m., when Roosevelt's group traveled slowly to the bandstand, the crowd numbered 25,000. Roosevelt rode in the back of an open green Buick convertible. 
When FDR's car finally stopped at the steps of the amphitheater, there were a number of dignitaries waiting on stage. The sounds of music from the American Legion, Drum, and Bugle Corps were nearly drowned out by the clapping and cheering from the crowd. As Roosevelt had physical limitations due to polio, he was propped up on the back of the open convertible so that he could be more easily seen. The dignitaries came down to greet him for his speech. One of the spectators in the crowd was a small 32-year-old man with a dark complexion and steely eyes named Giuseppe Zangara, although those who knew him called him Joe. In Joe's waistband was a five-shot 32 caliber pistol. He bought it at a Miami pawn shop for $8. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was introduced by the mayor of Miami and gave a less-than-one-minute speech, all of 145 words. He handed the microphone off and turned his attention to the waiting dignitaries. One was Chicago Mayor Anton Cermak. Cermak was interested in speaking with FDR about Roosevelt's plans for cabinet appointments. As Roosevelt and Cermak shook hands warmly, Roosevelt suggested they talk on the train later that evening, and Cermak agreed. As he moved away from the president-elect, Cermak stepped toward the back of the car, putting himself between Roosevelt and Giuseppe Joe Zangara. As the crowd stood to get a better look, five foot one inch, one hundred pound Joe Zangara stepped onto a rickety chair to get a better look. To his side was a woman named Lillian Cross, also standing on a chair, and on the other side a man named Tom Armour. Zangara raised his pistol and began firing wildly toward Roosevelt. Lillian Cross claimed to have been the first to grab the gunman's arm and force it upward, but not before he was able to get two shots off. Even after Lillian Cross grabbed his arm, Zangara continued to fire. Others, including Tom Armour, wrestled Zangara to the ground. The crowd converged and began beating Zangara before police intervened. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was not hit by the barrage of bullets, but others were. One of the most seriously wounded was Mabel Gill, the wife of the president of the power company who had been shot in the abdomen. Bill Sinat, a 46-year-old New York policeman, suffered a glancing wound to his forehead and scalp. Margaret Cruis, a 23-year-old visitor from New Jersey, had a bullet pierce her hand. 22-year-old chauffeur Russell Caldwell, who lived in the neighboring Coconut Grove, Florida, was hit in the forehead by a spent bullet which embedded itself under the skin. Chicago Mayor Anton Cermak was the worst wounded when a bullet penetrated his torso, traversing the right lung, right diaphragm, and his liver, lodging in his 11th thoracic vertebra. Yes, I read the medical reports. At Roosevelt's car, Secret Service agents converged to protect the president-elect, shielding him with their bodies. They ordered the driver to take off. Roosevelt later recalled, quote, I looked around and saw Mayor Cermak doubled up on the ground. I told the chauffeur to stop. He did, quote, but the Secret Service agent shouted to him to get out of the crowd. Quote, the chauffeur started again, and I stopped him again, Roosevelt later said. Looking back, I saw Cermak being carried along. 
and we put him in our car. He was alive, but I was afraid he wouldn't last, end quote. Roosevelt cradled his wounded friend the 20 blocks to the hospital. At the hospital, doctors initially gave Cermak a 50% chance of survival, but did not feel they should operate right away. Back in Chicago, when informed of the shooting, Chief of Detectives William Shoemaker immediately requested that Florida officials take into custody 18 associates of Al Capone reportedly in town in Miami. Shoemaker also asked railroad officials to furnish lists of Chicagoans who had bought tickets there in the recent weeks. It was reported in the February 16, 1933 Pittsburgh Sun-Telegraph newspaper that after the shooting, Roosevelt went back to the Vincent Astor yacht before he departed for New York the next morning. He stopped at Jackson Memorial Hospital where Mayor Cermak was recuperating. Cermak reportedly told the president-elect, I am mighty glad it was me instead of you. I wish you would be careful. The country needs you. Roosevelt responded, We need you and men like you. Now, when I mentioned to my dad that I was working on this story, he remembered the line as, I am glad it was me instead of you. More on that later. I had to break it to him that it was originally printed in newspapers without attributing the source and that most historians doubt this exchange actually ever occurred. It most likely owes its origin to the flourish of a writer. From his hospital bed, Cermak said, quote, Tell Chicago I'll pull through. This is a tough old body of mine, and a mere bullet isn't going to pull me down. I was elected to be World's Fair mayor, and that's what I'm going to be. As for the shooter, Giuseppe Joe Zangara, he had what can only be described as a pretty horrible upbringing in Italy. His mother died when he was two. His father took him out of school at age six and put him to work doing strenuous work, digging ditches and hauling heavy rocks and bricks. Often malnourished, he began to experience severe stomach pain, which would trouble him his entire life. Zangara blamed those around him for his stomach issues, focusing most of his rage on the wealthy and politicians, soon becoming convinced that if he could kill the leader of the capitalists, his stomach pain would go away. He plotted to assassinate Italy's King Victor Emmanuel III, but left for the U.S. with an uncle before acting on those impulses. In the States, Zangara and his uncle settled in Philadelphia, where he got a job as a bricklayer. Zangara lived frugally and used his savings to travel to California and Panama in the hopes the warmer climates would help his stomach issues. In 1926, doctors operated on Zangara, removing his appendix, which they expected would relieve his pain. It did not. In September of 1929, Zangara became a naturalized U.S. citizen. By 1932, as the woes of the Great Depression started to affect him, Zangara believed that if he assassinated President Herbert Hoover, everything would be better. Before he had the chance to try, Hoover lost the election to Franklin Roosevelt. Zangara then had his new target. After his arrest, Zangara expressed no regret at his actions, saying, quote, I meant to kill Roosevelt, and I'm sorry I didn't. I would kill all presidents and all officers, end quote. 
Now, for as much as Angar's rage was focused on the rich, he wasn't destitute. Although he had recently lost $200 of the dog races, he had $850 in a savings account. That's more than $17,000 in today's money. Giuseppe Zangara was arraigned on four counts of assault with intent to kill. There was also an added murder charge pending should Cermak or Mabel Gill die. Zangara insisted on pleading guilty. In broken English, he proclaimed, quote, I kill capitalists because they kill me, stomach like drunk man, no point living, give me electric chair, end quote. When the judge sentenced Zangara to four terms of 20 years each, Zangara shouted at the judge, quote, Don't be stingy, give me a hundred, end quote. Over the next 19 days, Mayor Cermak's health while in the hospital would improve, then fall back, then improve again. He developed colitis, low heart rate, gangrene, and pneumonia in his damaged lung. Somehow he kept an upbeat attitude for most of it. The four others wounded in the shooting all recovered, although it is said Mabel Gill, shot in the abdomen, had health difficulties related to the shooting for the rest of her life. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was sworn in as the 32nd president on March 4th, 1933. Sadly, just two days later, on March 6th, Anton Joseph Cermak died at 6.57 a.m. local time with family and close friends at his bedside. His daughter Helena held one of his hands and his 15-year-old granddaughter Vivian held the other when he passed. He had slipped into a coma at midnight and never regained consciousness. He was 59 years old. Doctors would later attribute his death not to the bullet, but to his colitis, although the bullet started his health's downhill path. The mayor of Miami proclaimed a period of mourning from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. that evening as the mayor's body left the hospital. Eleven hours after Cermak breathed his last breath, a bronze casket carrying his body was draped with an American flag and loaded onto a specially chartered train while the American Legion band played Near My God to Thee. The train departed the Miami station at 6 p.m., and after a few stops along the way, arrived in Chicago at 10 a.m. on March 9th. Back in Chicago, thousands waited to view Sir Max's body in his home at 2348 South Millard in the Lawndale neighborhood. When his casket was moved to City Hall, those wishing to pay respect stood in the cold and wind for hours. It was estimated those passing Sir Max's coffin numbered 6,000 per hour. Women overcome with emotion fainted or tried to throw themselves on the coffin. For the three days leading up to his funeral, the only flowers on Cermak's casket were a small sheath of Easter lilies tied in a bronze ribbon sent by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Before the casket left City Hall, fresh lilies were placed over the wilted ones. On the morning of Friday, March 10th, 1933, Cermak's casket was escorted to the Chicago Stadium at Madison and Wood Streets by a parade of soldiers, officials, and citizens. The numerous flowers at City Hall had been removed the night before and transported to the stadium in 20 trucks. 
At the Chicago Stadium, 23,000 people filled the stands to pay tribute to their fallen mayor. The casket was placed in the center of a 75-foot-long by 50-foot-wide cross on the main floor. At the east and west sides stood American flags, and placed all about were tall vases filled with acacia, lilies, and pussy willow. The organ played, Somewhere a Voice is Calling. Before Governor Henry Horner gave the eulogy, he read a telegram from President Roosevelt. It is a sincere regret to me that the emergency of the present situation makes it impossible for me to leave Washington at this time, as otherwise I should have wanted to pay last tribute to a true friend. Even without the tragic setting of his death, the passing of Anton Cermak would have brought to me a sense of deep loss, and under the circumstances, his untimely end came as even a deeper personal loss. I want you to feel that I mourn with the family and dear ones. The procession to Bohemian National Cemetery at North Crawford, now Pulaski, and Bryn Mawr numbered 30,000 and traveled a five-mile route through Humboldt Park, Palmer Square, and more. At the cemetery, a crowd numbering close to 50,000 sought to approach the tomb where Cermak was to be laid to rest near his wife. All told, 100,000 mourners were said to be part of the funeral of Chicago's Mayor Anton Tony Cermak. On the crypt wall are the words allegedly uttered to FDR, I'm glad it was me instead of you. Days after the funeral, Chicago officials voted to change the name of 22nd Street to Cermak Road. The street was chosen to honor the late mayor because it passes through the neighborhoods of Pilsen and Lawndale, both at the time heavily Czech-American. The neighboring cities of Cicero, Berwyn, and North Riverside were also ready to change the name of 22nd Street within their city limits. Justice was swift in the case of Giuseppe Zangara. On the day of Anton Cermak's death, Zangara was charged with murder. He pled guilty and was sentenced to death by electrocution. On March 20, 1933, just 33 days after the shooting in Bayfront Park, Zangara was strapped into the electric chair at the Florida State Prison to meet his fate. An autopsy later that day showed no defect in his brain, but that he had a diseased gallbladder, which was likely the cause of much of his stomach pain. In stark contrast to Mayor Cermak's funeral, Zangara had no one to mourn him, no one claimed his remains, and the state denied requests of several medical colleges. He was buried on the grounds of the state prison with other forgotten men. Now, there have been rumors ever since the shooting that Cermak was always the target as retaliation for messing with Capone's businesses or that it was arranged by a disgruntled Big Bill Thompson. I wouldn't put it past him. But the federal government looked into this event thoroughly and feels Angara acted alone and that his target was always, indeed, FDR. A plaque honoring Cermak can be found at the site of the shooting in Miami's Bayfront Park in 2013. A school in Prague, the capital of the Czech Republic, honored Cermak by taking on the deceased mayor's name on the 140th anniversary of his birthday. 
Cermak's grandson, Anton Kerner, attended the ceremony, along with U.S. Ambassador to the Czech Republic, Norman Eisen. For those of you history buffs wondering if I'm going to mention it, yes, Anton Cermak was not the first Chicago mayor to die from gunfire. Carter H. Harrison, Chicago's first five-term Chicago mayor, was also gunned down 40 years earlier, but that is a story that we'll have to wait for a future episode. Thanks to the efforts of Tian Yi Zhang, Anton Cermak's house at 2348 South Millard was added to the National Register of Historic Places on February 4th, 2011. Chicago has remained a Democrat-run city since Cermak defeated Thompson in 1931. According to Tribune writer Rick Kogan in a 2017 column, when Richard M. Daley left the office of mayor of Chicago in 2011 after his 22-year run, he took his office desk with him. Incoming Mayor Rahm Emanuel asked his crew to retrieve an even older replacement desk from the Corporation Council's office, the one used by Anton Cermak. After serving for some time behind that desk, Emanuel would later say, quote, Each day I reflect on the legacy that Mayor Cermak left the city of Chicago. Thanks for listening to today's episode about Mayor Anton Cermak and his untimely end. Do you have any questions about anything covered today, anything to add, or have an idea for a future episode topic? I want to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I will have plenty of news clippings and photos I'll post on social media throughout the week. If you're on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, please give us a follow. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate and review or tell a friend about it. It will help the podcast grow and reach new fans. Your written review may even be featured on a future episode or on social media. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, Johnny. He can be found at Angel Eyes Art JKS on Instagram or by email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com I will be back next week with another chapter in Chicago's history until then, get out and explore when possible, learn more about whatever city you live in, and stay safe <laughs>